0: Hey folks, it's Nick. Before we get into this episode, I want to warn you that we're going to be talking about death a lot in this story, particularly death related to animals. If that is a bit too much for you to handle, I totally understand. Check out one of the older episodes in the archive and come back next Monday for the Season 2 epilogue. If you're totally on board, then let's get started. One of the features of living in Florida that is often overlooked is how ever-present water is in our lives. Until you traveled out of the state, you don't realize how many lakes, rivers, ponds, estuaries, bogs, swamps, and more permeate every mile of our peninsula. You can be driving through a neighborhood, passing yellow strip malls and pink homes, and then, for a flash, beyond the line of humanity, there is water. The reflection of sunlight against your eyes, and you see that water is just out of sight. Just across that line, everywhere you go. Central Florida is no exception. Lakeside dining or lakefront homes are commonplace. My apartment looks out over a body of water and so does nearly everyone else's that I know. My college is on a lake. One of my jobs is on a lake. People often complain about the unusual road design of the city of Orlando with major roadways curving at strange intervals or elevating to a bridge every few miles. We are not a grid with obvious charted pathways. Many of the roads change their path suddenly and swerve at a 90 degree angle and snake their way somewhere else entirely simply to avoid one of the many massive lakes in our city. This isn't always the case, of course, and sometimes the urban sprawl has no choice but to expand and grow and build a new barrier between Central Floridians and our lakes. They don't curve around them, they build over them. Somehow we make the water even more out of sight. The lakes back in the early 20th century were not just available, they were essential. They were the draw to Central Florida. The atmosphere of the warm, spring-fed lakes in the center of the state was much more soothing and amiable than the raucous and aggressive waves along the coasts. Rich white visitors to Orlando could boat around, swim in the warm pools, and experience the native ecosystem face to face. Well, at least partially native. If we're to remember anything about the rich during this era, it's how insistent they were on creating a highly cultivated experience, even when they were traveling from out of town or establishing life in a new state. So, Orlando is a home to many spectacular waterfowl ducks and herons and egrets and ibises. We have cranes and owls and even pelicans. That didn't matter. There had to be something else. And that something else was swans. I'm Nick DeLisandro and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is the season 2 finale. We're talking about taxidermy, and Orlando's own favorite pet.
1: Another Orlando pioneer is dead, for after a brief illness brought on by, no, brought on no doubt by overeating, like many other, he dearly loved things that weren't good for him. Billy, number one swan of Lake Lucerne, has passed to his father's. He was 75 years of age.
0: That's Melissa Procco. She's a historian with the Orange County Regional History Center. She's reading the obituary, not for a person, but for Orlando's favorite pet swan, Billy. Billy was an icon in Orlando when it was first developing and bringing in permanent residents. He was popular not just because of his unique character, but because of the controversy sparked by his actions. The story goes that in 1885, an English couple moved to Orlando and set up residence over a small lake south of Orlando called Lake Lucerne. It's an odd little oval-shaped lake that today borders the prominent East-West Expressway, split right down the middle by Orlando Avenue. A century ago, it was the hottest spot for rich New Orlando citizens building on fresh, undeveloped land. Two such developers were Charles and Alice Lord. They were friendly and well-liked and found the sunshine of the Sunshine State to be extremely favorable. As comfortable as they were, Charles was seeking some nostalgia from his original home in England near the River Thames. Along that particular river in London, visitors would often watch beautiful porcelain white swans drift down the river in the afternoon light, squawking and preening and sleeping. It was 1910 and the city was creeping toward a larger population. It's unclear if Charles Lord knew of the impact he was about to have. Did he know he was, with this one act, redefining the character of Orlando forever? He paid $95.05, which would translate to about $2,500 today. He had a little quartet of swans shipped down to Florida from Connecticut, or maybe London, we're not entirely sure. And he set them up near his home on the shores of Lake Lucerne.
1: So Charles Lord brought two pairs of swans here but one pair was just kind of being attacked and like (laughs) this other pair was just being (laughs) very mean to them. So they got moved to Lake Eola, but Billy and his mate, Sally, um, they stayed at Lake Lucerne.
0: From the moment he arrived to the shores of Orlando, Billy was not just a new mascot for Mr. Lord and his estate. Billy had a personality all his own and he made sure you knew it. He would honk at passersby, particularly children on their way to school, If any of the kids or even cars got near where he would be protecting his eggs from any danger, he would hunt them down, yell at them, even attack some. Later in his life, it was well known in the local papers that Billy was more than just a nasty character. He was a murderer.
1: And one day, Billy was on his rounds around the lake, and Sally was waiting. And Waiting and then she got tired of waiting. So she left. She's like, well, it's my turn. He's not back in time So she left um, to go take her turns around the lake and Billy came back and all of the little baby swans um, Were no longer alive. So he took matters into his own hands um, And he went and found Sally and drowned her because he was so angry <laughs>
0: All of this somehow didn't bother the people of Orlando. Even as he made enemies in the swan and school communities, Billy was still a popular figure in the gossip columns. He was so popular, as if he was a socialite or a politician. They kept track of his romances, his disputes, his whereabouts. When he got in combat with other swans, he had to be moved, that didn't matter. As long as he was around, the people of Orlando had some very unusual entertainment.
1: When Billy and Sally and then the other pair of swans came in, they were the first swans that were brought to Orlando. So people had to have been interested in this story, and then they kind of just get invested. Um, I mean, if you think about it, think about today, how people will follow, like, dogs on Instagram, and there are, like, specific dog accounts, and then when those dogs pass away, like, you follow their lives. So it's similar, like, a dog Instagram account is, like, Billy being mentioned in the gossip column so much.
0: And then, of course... Billy died. It's said that he was 75 years old when he died, though we're not entirely sure. That could be a fabricated number to increase his profile. If he was 75, that would make him three times older than the average lifespan for a swan. Whether it was preferential treatment or sheer spite that kept him alive this long is lost to history. Regardless, he stayed both a local celebrity and the town grump until the day he died.
1: So when Billy started to get sick, this is in 1932, so shortly before he died, um, they were taking him to the vet to get checked on because they were getting concerned. They were kind of expecting it to be the end of his life. While he was gone, his mate started to get lonely, so they brought in another swan for him. This swan was named Charlie. Um, But then Billy got better, and they were able to bring him back to the lake. And he had to, and this is me with my limited knowledge of what swan culture is like um since mary had now chosen charlie as her mate billy had to fight charlie to prove to mary that he deserved to be with her still um but charlie was much younger charlie was much stronger than billy who at this point if we're going by the 78 age for him he would have been 77 um So that didn't really go over too well for Billy. And then um, I believe the story is that Mary ended up staying with Charlie and then Billy eventually died of old age, or as they claim, a broken heart.
0: He couldn't be let go of that easily. Orlando needed him. So, in the early weeks of 1933, right after Billy passed away, the owner of the aptly named Swan and Company Dry Goods took in the little swan, had him stuffed by a taxidermist, and displayed Billy in his front window. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about taxidermy. I'm not afraid to admit to you that it makes me a little nervous. It's hard to not balk a little, to hesitate. I don't have a lot of relationship with taxidermy. It's been around me, certainly, and I've seen a lot of it, but part of what makes taxidermy alright is that it's distant, sort of like an art piece made of real, organic material. So without getting too graphic, let's break down the basics, using Billy as our example. Classic taxidermy, at its core, is about preserving the animal's anatomy. The animal looked a certain way in life, and as a taxidermist working to preserve that animal, knowing the structure and composition is essential. Now, on these forms, you're going to cut basically with the form of the actual creature, along the seams, so to speak, where you can't see the breakages. You'll need to measure each individual asset perfectly, over and over again, so you know every inch the guts are, of course, removed, so that there is none of the worst stuff you can imagine like decomposition. Then with that exterior form removed you can place it on an artificial structure, a form built to represent the internal manifestation of the animal you're stuffing. Now, in the case of Billy, and swans in general, this is where one would face slight problems. Swans obviously have extremely long necks that have a natural curve to them. They don't sit perfectly straight, but they aren't bent in a hard angle where they're just resting naturally. They're at a sort of slight tilted line. So getting that form exact is so difficult. The precision of this and how essential the effect is on the final product make it more than just a craft. It is an art form.
2: I'm interested in, like, kind of looking at the gray areas of things because I think that, like, like, right, like, what's messy and what's clean? Like, what do we consider to be, like, nice or what's, like, ugly or dirty? I don't know. I'm just, like, uh, and taxidermy was a great way to do that because I was able to take, like, this kind of thing that people don't really know a ton about unless they're doing it um, and kind of be, like, what's a way to, like, think about this in a way where it's, like, maybe, like, a thing of beauty for people who are making it.
0: That is Kristen Arnett. If you've never heard of her you'll be seeing her name more and more she's kind of florida's next big thing i first heard of her work through an article my friend olivia matthew sent me kristen writes about florida and how difficult it is to write about here's olivia herself reading some of that essay how do i write about the unseen parts muck dragged up from the roots of my experiences Springy Spanish moss hangs from trees like ancient party streamers. Close-set palmetto bushes breed 100 slicked-backed roaches. The prick of sand spurs digs into my bare feet as I run across a yard. It is pain and pleasure. It's a taste-like mold in the back of the throat. It's the snow cone shop where the owner throws hunks of ice at the kids while they wait for frozen dollar treats, even in December even in January, even standing in the torrential rain of daily August
2: thunderstorms.
0: Earlier this year, Kristen released her debut novel, Mostly Dead Things. It's a story about a woman, Jessa, whose father recently died. When he did, he left his taxidermy shop to her, and she has been struggling to keep it afloat since. On top of this, she's worrying about her downtrodden brother, her bizarre mother, and her own tenuous and often failing romantic relationship with a new woman.
2: Jessa has to, has to is forced to deal with like all these feelings, like dealing with grief and loss, and like intimacy and love, and. She doesn't want to, but she kind of has to, because she's constantly being confronted by it and dealing with it. And I was like, that, that the reader has to do it, too, because you have to sit in those things with her. And while she, like, wildly does not want to.
0: <laughs> Taxidermy is at the core of the story, how it's used and how it affects people and how it's done. Half of the chapters are titled after local Florida wildlife and deal with one of the characters interacting with that creature the line between the wild and humanity is so blurred in florida already and in this book it's creeping through the cracks under your door and into the wood the taxidermy is a part of that it's like a trojan horse welcoming in this dead living thing and acknowledging all of the complexities of that relationship the craftsmanship is narrated in detail but so are the relationships the feelings and the fondness many hold for these stuffed creatures
2: So working like through taxidermy also as a way to kind of like talk about the different like animal life that is in Florida just felt like a very natural progression for me and it was also for me like a way for me to talk about like kind of the cyclical nature of like birth and death and like wildness that's like exists in the state. So it was it was a a great like tool like a vehicle for me to kind of move through and not only talk about Florida but also talk about like relationships and family and those kind of dynamics that are moving like in, in any kind of lived space.
0: Another central facet to the story is its location. It's set in Orlando. Kristen tells me that it's not meant to be anywhere specific in Orlando because then each person could transplant their own idea of the city into their mind. For me, there's an intersection where Winter Park Road meets Corinne Drive in the middle of Audubon Park. Every time that the protagonist would describe the location of the shop, that's where I saw it. The familiarity of the spaces that the characters inhabit go beyond its Orlando setting. Through her words, Kristen Arnett finds ways to describe Florida in a completely sensory style.
2: I want to write about this as like I'm actually physically moving through a space, so um, I really tried to think about it that kind of way, like in in terms of like the senses, so like you know, what does it smell like, what do, like what would you feel on your skin, which I think is such a central Florida thing anyway, right, like the air feels like it's touching you or pressing on you. yeah, so I, th- and I thought about, like, okay, what are the things you hear when you're outside? Like, I really was trying to be thoughtful and mindful, so I sat, like, a lot of those times in scene and thought about, like, you know, what is it like to be outside at night in Florida? Like, what do you hear? And it's, like, very specific and loud, you know? Even, like, when it's quiet out, you're hearing a lot of things.
0: If you've lived in Florida, you know exactly what Kristen is talking about here. It's cool now, as autumn takes over the state, but during those hot months, when the air is so thick you feel it pass into your lungs, the whole world has an energy that you can't quite put your finger on. The burning edge of humanity melts away, and just beyond that lies the water, the grass, the heat, the wild. In my memory, I feel it so clearly. Scorching walks to the car after the beach, rainy treks between classes, clear bright evenings as the humidity refuses to fade. Our memories as Floridians would not feel the exact way that they do if they were anywhere but in Florida. It illuminates those stories at their core. In Kristen's novel, that idea of taxidermy and remembering is built to be intertwined.
2: Well, I think ultimately, you know, taxidermy is a, t- a kind of memory, and I think we're always trying to preserve memory, like, even outside of taxidermy, like, what are the ways that we remember stories, like, what are we, what are the things that we, how do we remember them, and, like, memories are completely taxidermy, they're shaped, imposed, we, like, uh, look at them and, and turn them over and over in our heads until they, they become a thing, uh, there's this, like, quote, oh, I, I can't remember who said it, but it's, uh, memory is only the memory of the last time you told it or thought about it
0: now if you'll allow me i'd like to tell you a little bit about my family cats there are two of them calvin and midge calvin is a mancoon the runt of his litter still tiny even though he's over a year old he's talkative and rambunctious my family will often find him on top of the fridge with this look on his face of wonder why are you so worried about him Midge is a Manx, with a little round face and a bobtail. She's quiet, only meowing when she wants to. She eats a lot, and her little round belly bounces as she runs. They are beloved by us and everyone who meets them. But for my little family, there will always be Hobbs. I had only a few pets growing up, a dog or two here or there, but Hobbs came into my life when I was just 11 years old. He was antisocial when I first met him, but then Hobbs started spending more time in the open. He would cuddle up with me while I worked, and, and we would chase each other around the house, and he would stick a paw under my door to tell me he wanted to spend some time together. He would shed like nobody's business, and his big tufts of brown and golden hair clung to every fabric around. We didn't mind. Hobbs left his mark everywhere he went. He was old when I went to college, and every time I came home, I would give him a big kiss on the head, afraid that this might be our last time together. When we finally said goodbye, we all knew, and we were ready. We kissed him a few times, and that was it. I kept a big chunk of his hair, and it still sits in a cup on my desk where I write. It's a little capsule of my old kitten that I keep by my side. When the new cats came into my life, it didn't feel like a replacement. It felt like a new chapter, an extension of Hobbes' impact on our lives. I see a little bit of him in everything Calvin and Midge do. For most of my life, my stepdad would joke that once Hobbs was gone, he was going to have him stuffed. He would be dressed like a navy general with a huge tricorn blue hat and magnificent double-breasted coat. He would have a paw resting on a huge rock and his glassy green eyes would be set on the distant horizon. We called him the inspector general in life, and in his taxidermized form, he would always remain. We never went through with that, the reality was maybe a little too ghoulish for us. But I remember so clearly imagining it, and for the first time I understood why people liked taxidermy so much. You could lock something in amber, so to speak, and keep it forever. And just like that, I understand why the city of Orlando couldn't let Billy the Swan go. When we lose things, things that we don't want to lose, we want so desperately to keep any piece of it that we can, in our rational mind we know that it's likely gone forever but we try to cling on even though it will never be whole again even if you keep something it will be a remnant part of a puzzle that we use our memories to fill in the blanks when a building is torn down we keep a brick when a loved one passes we hold on to an article of clothing when a beloved pet is gone we keep a toy or a tuft of hair or their collar or sometimes we keep them And the weird beauty of taxidermy is that we can sculpt them however we want, how we saw them, how we wish them to be remembered. Sure, it'll never be the same, but it's as good as it can get, and sometimes, for some people, that's enough. Billy is with the Orange County History Center now. He's in storage currently due to his deteriorating quality. They are looking to refurbish the old bird and make sure that future generations can hear his remarkable story the way that we have. See, before I talked with Melissa, I thought that the people of Orlando preserved Billy in this way for us, so that maybe in a hundred years, a best-selling author, a historian, and a podcaster would talk about him for half an hour, but Melissa reminded me that it was likely not so selfless. The preservation of the old swan wasn't so we could remember. It was for them. It was so that they could hold on to something that they were losing and not watch it fade. It was for them. We're just lucky that he survived and was passed from person to person until he made his way here. That's the best that we all can hope for as we try to make our mark in this world. That the impact we have gets passed on and leaves an echo so that somehow, a hundred years from now, someone will be feeling the effect of the goodness we once tried to bring into this world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. It is the final episode of Season 2. I cannot express to you how much each and every one of you mean to me and how much you keep this show alive. It is my greatest joy to tell these stories to and for you, and finding new stories is the best part of the job. I've had a lot of people in the last few months tell me how much this show has made them find their love for Florida. Floridians, or people who have come and gone from the state, saying that it has reawakened their affection for their state, and that really, really means the world to me. I hope that you are enjoying it as well. Season 3 is just going to go up from here. I cannot wait for you to hear what's coming. There are really some amazing things on the horizon. Thank you so much to the brilliant Kristen Arnett. Her book Mostly Dead Things is available everywhere books are sold. It is incredible, a true picture of life growing up in Florida. She has two books set to be released with Penguin Random House in the next few years, so keep your eye out for that. Oh, and go read her essay about Florida women in the New York Times. Just read everything she's ever written. She's unbelievable. Thank you again to my dear friend Olivia Matthews for providing her voice to this show. She introduced me to Kristen's work in the first place and has been one of the longest fans of this podcast. It wouldn't be what it is without her. She herself is a playwright and has some outstanding work on the horizon. Check her and her amazing work out at the link below. One more thank you is due to the Orange County Regional History Center where Billy the Swan resides. Melissa Procco is the researcher who spoke to me about this bizarre little story. She is a delight. If you ever need any help with anything historical in Orange County, you know who to call. Everything the History Center does is outstanding. It's one of my favorite spots in town. Their year-round exhibit about Florida history is a delight, and their current exhibit, The Accidental Historian, runs until January 19th. Be sure to pay them a visit. That being said, a few programming updates. Next week, there will be an epilogue to Season 2, a review of the stories of the past few months, the things we learned, and a few updates since the episodes came out. Then a week after that, I'll be starting a new short form series while season three is in production. It's called Floridians. You can expect a new episode or two between every season break. I'll be speaking with a fascinating Floridian from the previous season and going a little more in depth on their expertise and the important work that they do to make Florida life a little sweeter. Then in January, season three, more on that soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Now that season two is done, it's a perfect little capsule to introduce it to someone. If you have any sort of holiday drive, maybe Thanksgiving, maybe Hanukkah, maybe Christmas, if you're going to visit a family member, why not listen to this while you travel? I think it's a nice, relaxing, perfect show to listen to while you're en route to wherever you're off to. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode there? You can also send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I'm still filling out season three and, of course, season four, but that's months and months and months away. But whatever you want to hear, I want to hear it. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I cannot thank them enough for their incredible work. I'll be back next Monday with the epilogue to season two. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others. If you celebrate Thanksgiving, have a happy one, and please drink more water. Thanks for listening.